Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to coach, podcaster and author, Joel Smith. Thanks for tuning in to episode 310 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this episode, I had so much fun with this episode... Joel is such a good guy, had such a laugh, and he also delivered some amazing content on this episode for the next hour. So, in this episode, we discussed Joel's philosophy when it comes to not only jump training and plyometrics, but training in general. Also, a little bit of personal stuff in there as well, and how he lives his life, and how he pursues his goals, all that kind of stuff. Then we have a little chat around programming and planning jump training and his two paths of training, so we go quite deep on that. Then we have a little chat around horizontal versus vertical jumps, the importance of variation, and then finish off with some chat around focusing on what's going on at the foot, which leads into a conversation around his new book that he's got coming out and all other good stuff that he has on his website. So thank you for tuning into this episode with Joel. You'll get loads out of it if you're working with any level of athlete, absolutely any level of athlete, and hopefully you have some good fun listening to it as well, because I certainly did. So over to this episode with Joel. Would love your feedback. Speak soon. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics, the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, Head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can I mean, you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at hawkingdynamics. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. I Measure You, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defense and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about I Measure You, head over to their website, imeasureyou.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureyou. So without further ado, over to the episode with Joel Smith. Thanks for tuning in to the Pace Performance Podcast this evening. I'm delighted to welcome Joel Smith. So welcome to the podcast, mate. Hey, thanks for having me here, Rob. Appreciate it, man. Thank you for coming on. Sad I didn't get to uh, time it perfectly for the, for the new podcast studio, but um, this will have to do for now. But yeah. thank you 
thank you for coming on. Excited to see it, by the way. Um, yeah, it'll be cool. Yeah, yeah, it'll be cool. It'll be better than this, uh, you know, the bedroom and the, you know, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> gotta do what you gotta do. No problem. Um, anyone doesn't know who you are, just want to give us a bit of a background on yourself, uh, what you're currently doing, and, and obviously your podcast as well. Yeah, so my I was a track coach turned strength coach turned, I guess, entrepreneur, although I've always had that kind of spirit in me to do fully my own thing. Um, a kid who grew up, I'm, I'm going to avoid the, like, the hour-long intro, but basically a kid who just grew up completely and utterly obsessed with um, becoming a better athlete um, from the time, honestly, I was five. I mean, this has just been part of me. I uh, went to did college, did the typical educational routes, um, bachelor's and master's, did a little research that ended up getting published along the way. That's my one research claim. I People might think of me and I talk of myself as being a very like anecdotal, a very art, the art, the East versus the West type person. But I do, I've done the, I've gone through the, the statistical process and I've been through that portion of it, at least once in my life and it was deemed good enough to actually publish. So there's that. I might have to come Shout back out. and reference that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> reference that if, if I get a little too esoteric. Um, but uh, so anyways, I spent six years as a track coach, uh, two years at Wisconsin Lacrosse, four years at Wilmington College. Uh, and that I thought that was my calling for a really long time because I was a little bit more into, uh, I guess, just that that output. Like, how do you make someone run as fast as possible? How do you get someone to jump as high as possible in context with these track and field and athletic skills? Strength and conditioning uh, I mean, or whatever it's, I think the term's changing, athletic performance, so whatever. whatever what, Changes by the day. <laughs> yeah, whatever it is, or whatever it is by the time this gets out. Uh, that was not as exciting to me right off the bat. And I and I think it actually took being, because that's what I did after the first six years, I was a strength coach full-time at UC Berkeley or Cal for, for about eight years. And I, I, I was never initially that excited about strength and conditioning because to me, just the, the there was a, this kind of disconnect between a, a very controlled like here's a set of squats and cleans and here's two or three things about the lift and versus just the pure chaotic nature of sport or even just track and field when there's a lot of like you know a very complex factors going into this skill this high jump this javelin throw uh, and so for me that puzzle was a little more engaging but as I went through the eight years at Cal, I was able to really kind of see the athlete from a very complex or multifactorial standpoint. And, and that gro- growth on my own part at that point, real, I realized that this, is, this can be uh, much more engaging than here's some you know, squat points and here's some velocity-based training markers and hit that. Like there's so much more that goes into this and it, it helped me grow as a person, a coach, everything. And I realized the strength and conditioning, if you will, it's almost like a a celebration of everything because it's so multi and interdisciplinary. Um, so that there's that, um, and then I'm on my own now. I left Cal back um, at the end of June or, or July 1st, and I'm here in Ohio now. And what I'm doing is I've t- taken Just Fly Sports full time, which is my my podcast, my website, my books, educational resources. I do online training. And I've taken that full time and I've also partnered with a gym, Evolutionary Fitness here where I will be, I'll have my new podcast studio. So trying to do bigger things with a podcast, Uh, training athletes in person, a diverse, a really diverse range of athletes too. And that was one of the things is if you work in a university, you're basically training the same people, same sport 
for an extended period of time. And I think if it's just the strength component and you aren't really doing anything else, I do think the growth really tapers off versus like just training. I mean, and even within a university, you can train different athletes. You can do different things. Um, for the scope of what I was doing, there, you know, I wasn't getting in any sort of data or, or metrics or monitoring at all. It's just here's the team and the lift and trying to fit this to the what the coach wants. And I just, there was more evolution for me. And so, yeah, I moved out here uh, to where I am now and just expanding in, in really in everything, oh, coaching all sorts of, you know, a, a gen pop adult, uh, you know, youth and, and getting in track and field and, and all that stuff. So it's it's exciting. I'm, I'm excited to be where I'm at now. Nice. Sounds exciting. How, how did you get into the podcast? How did you start? Why did you start? That's a good question. I almost want to ask you the same thing. Yeah, let's do tough. it. <laughs> I'm going to ask you at the end of this because I, yeah, go for it. I, I mean, I, you're, it's funny because after I did, I started my podcast, it was a few years down the road, I realized that a lot of these other ones um, that I was listening to weren't that much, didn't start that much further before I did. But even though it seemed like they were around forever, like yours, um, Jay DeMeo's, I remember Mike Robertson's. And I guess it was just kind of like, oh, there's some other podcasts. I guess I should do that too. Like I never had a dream or a vision I think there was really two big reasons. One, just being like, I just think we should do this, I guess. And two, I thought I need to just talk with other coaches and listen to them more. Um, Cause I know that I'm a big, um, like I'm a reader, like I'm, I will just, I'll read books and I'll do it. But I think the, I realized that at some point you don't run out of books to read, but you, you realize that now you have your structure set by these, these cornerstone books, but now it's like all about the art of just talking to people and just sharing thoughts and ideas and programs. And, and so I knew I needed to improve that part of myself. And so there, there it started and, you know, it's been a fun ride. How, so what made you, uh, what, what led you to start this whole thing? Tables have turned. Yeah. I'm similar to you really, to be honest. I just, I, I knew that I need to speak to more people about more things, whether that be business, whether that be coaching, whether that be, you know, anything. And I thought, well, no one knows who I am. I was working at a university at the time, coaching at university. And I thought, well, if I just, if I get a name of someone that I look up to and think, you know, I'd love to speak to that person, why would they ever speak to me? They don't know who I am. They don't know what I do. They don't know nothing about me. So how can I provide a platform which gives something to them which therefore allows them to give something to me. And I thought, like, everyone's got a book, everyone's got a website, everyone's got a course, everyone's got a just a, a career that they want to push. So I thought, well, I've seen, a, I've listened to a few podcasts, I've listened to Mike Boyles, um, there was a couple over here, well, one in particular over here. And I thought, I could do that. That's a perfect, perfect scenario for me to get them on under the proviso that we speak about the things that I want to speak about. And then we, I give them the floor and they can advertise their book, website, own podcast, whatever it may be. And that was it really. It was very just off the cuff, like one weekend, I think. And shall I do it? Yeah, might as well. Monday it was, it was been recorded on my phone, absolutely horrendous audio quality. And you just kind of learn on the go. And to me, it, it's, it's that that's been the really interesting thing, as well as speaking to interesting people. It's been the journey of learning, as we talked about before, audio editing, bit of video editing, building the website, all that kind of stuff that I would have never have 
learned and got into if it wasn't for that weekend thinking, yeah, might as well give it. I'll give it a go. So yeah, been a really it's it's been interesting for me. It's been it's been great. And how now I look back, everything that's happened since like six years ago has been because of that. Things that have led off, I'm sure exactly the same with you. Things have just happened because someone either gets to know you or you get to know them and the spider web grows and one thing leads to another and you're doing things you maybe um, didn't realise that was the track you're gonna go down. So yeah, that's it. Well, yeah. You were listening to your first ever podcast and like yeah. compare it to that. Like that's a fun experience, isn't it? <laughs> Like I said before, I don't think I listened to myself for a year or two. I'd, I'd edit it, but I wouldn't edit myself because I just couldn't bring myself to listen to my own voice. Um, it was, yeah, it was brutal. But I suppose if you did, if you if you look back now and listen to your first one and thought, oh, that's really good, you probably haven't come very far. Yeah. So it's got to be horrendous, hasn't it? It's got to be bad. But yeah. So you, you said you've always had a just flip it back on you now um you've always had that entrepreneur entrepreneurial head on you yeah well i did but i've never really i don't think i fully realized it till i was in my early 30s um late 20s early 30s because the whole just fly sports started um when i was um three out of my four years through wilmington college i was age 27 and all before that i had a lot of anxiety in college i don't i don't think it was it wasn't like I don't know, whatever levels of things, but I had anxiety about what am I going to do? Because I, all I knew was I like sports and, but in strength and conditioning, I just hear kind of horror stories for how many hours strength coaches work and how little they get paid. And I was originally signed up in sports medicine, but after two years of spending time in the training room and see athletes who just kind of came in there to have someone take care of them and they didn't really want to get better. I was like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> it was just my experience. I'm not saying that's bad. I did all sports medicine people. Zero <laughs> offense. And I, I do like, I do like some of the, you know, charge square one system I've been doing, like, like those types of interventions. I like learning about that. It was just that situation just really turned me off to it. And I, I just, even this coaching, it's like, you just, I just kind of, I guess I accepted, well, hopefully I can just make a living off this. And, but I think I would have never had that anxiety if someone just said, look, like the power is in your hands. You can do more than just this. And it wasn't until I was 27 that I think I realized that for the first time. And it was that's when I finally decided to pull the trigger and start Just Fly Sports because I've been writing a blog for a while. That was just my – it was kind of like a, maybe a dip. The just I didn't ever know that that would become anything I don't really remember what I was thinking when I started. I started writing at age 23, I guess I'll just say, is I had a blog. And a lot of people were following it, even when I was back that that young. And more than I had realized, because of the first time we dropped the email opt-in when I was 27 at Just Fly Sports, we had about 350 signups right in the first day. And that was like right in the, so I was like, oh, I don't know so many people are reading my stuff. Like, that's cool. And I think the more that that grew, the more I was able to really, uh, and it's just belief systems. We know this is athletics, this is life. My whole life, I just, all I ever heard was just grow up, get this job that pays X, Y, Z. And I just wanted in my soul, wanted nothing to do with that. Not that I do, I want to coach. Of course I do, you know, but I just think that I think I've constantly learned more about myself through starting that website at age 27. And I, and then also partnering with uh, Jake Clark, who does all the back end stuff and stuff I could never do, you know, and, and just realizing, look, Joe, you can't do it yourself. And I've just been realizing more about 
who I am. And that was also a big part of, of even just taking kind of a leap of faith to leave a full-time job with a wife and two kids as well. Like, and it just, it's, you, you learn more, you, the more you break down the old belief systems, the more you're empowered. And I think that that journey to me has been, uh, it's been a really beneficial one. So it's just been that, that, um, and, and now here I'm at 36 and I'm like, this is who I really am. Like this. And if I could say anything to myself at 21, when I'm sitting there lying on my college dorm bed, like worried that this job only makes X amount of money and how it's like, man, you have the power inside you. You can do, we live in a world where you can do so much. And so, yeah, um, that's been more manifested to me as I've kind of moved along this whole thing. Yeah. I was speaking to someone today actually about the jobs market. And if you go on the websites, especially here in the UK, there's not many jobs and that may scare people, but the opportunities are endless. So the lack of jobs may scare people, but the actual opportunities that can be created in people's communities, in people's own communities and how the, um, the qualities that a strength and conditioning coach will bring, which are wider than I think many coaches think, means that the opportunities are endless. Like you said, we're in an age where I'm speaking to you in Ohio and it's half past six my time and you're sat in your bedroom like recording a podcast. Like yep. when is yeah, when yeah. is this ever yeah. able to happen? Never. So the opportunities are endless. Um which I think is just frees your mind to think the power is in my hands. I'm the one in charge. I can do something about it. And it's you clearly have done so it's great. Yeah, it's been good. I think part of it too is Ron McKeefrey said this, who wrote CEO Strength Coach. I think it's at Fresno State now. And he's I, I believe he said this on my podcast. I'll always remember it. He's like, look, like you can work with and there's nothing wrong with working at the highest tier of athlete at all. I mean, and I spent a good portion of my time at Cal working with Olympic swimmers and learned just a ton from them. Um, but to work if if it's like I want to be at this level of sport. Really, just it comes at a cost. It comes at a cost of time and family. And I have found that I, I I've had opportunities there, but at the end of the day, if I am just learning and growing every day and in a, in a meaningful way, and as long as it doesn't matter if I'm working with uh, an 11 year old athlete or an Olympian or just it, it doesn't. If I've gotten that point where in my mind this does not matter, it's as long as you go and you give it your best and you're. Um, working in love and serving and and it's a good thing and so again no no I mean I still do hope honestly I would love to be an Olympic a coach of the Olympics in track and field someday I, that's one of my goals uh, but I I'd say I'm happy where I'm at now like it's not it is it's a, been a good thing so mm-hmm. sounds great so just just bring it back on to philosophy I'd like to get and I always find this really interesting how people frame it and how deep people go and things, but just your philosophy as a coach, and then we'll use that as a bit of a jumping off point to, to dive a little bit deeper. Yeah. What's my philosophy? So I, <laughs> that's a, that's a big one. Um, so I'll just say, I, I, I think I can start with, I don't want to be a contrarian, but I, I guess I, my goal is to start with the human being and I, I start with, start with nature. And so I can, I'll draw that in two, two parallels. One, start with the human being means if I'm training an athlete in any context, be it it's track, it's a weight room session, it's I'm just outside, we're just doing something fitness related, maybe it's a trail run. I want to start with what makes you a human being. And so I got this, uh, two people in my life have been really uh, podcast or, or friends, 
Uh, one, Rafe Kelly, I've spoke with him on and off my podcast, Evolve Move Play is his business. And he, he comes at, uh, he has, I think, a sociology uh, background as well, or human, human development. And so he talks about approaching the training session from one of, uh, basically, it's like being a human being first. Are, are, is there a smile on your face? Are you laughing? Like, it's almost like we've, I, I think about the, the strength and conditioning industry. It's like, we're a young industry. Like we, you know, we're what, 50 years old? I mean, when, whenever Boyd Epley, what was that, like late 60s? I don't even know. We're, we're like, I mean, and you look at like the medical industry and how long has that been around? And look at the stuff they were doing in the 1800s. They're like, what in the world? You know, like, like what was going on here? And, and so I, I just think that I look at training and I like, like, yes, I think a lot of what we're doing is good, fundamentally good. But I, I just think that we still have a lot that is left to learn. And I think about a lot of training is something that we, We've created all this. Like we, like, like a squat, a barbell squat is not something that you find in nature. Uh, you know, all the crazy exercises on Instagram that that get a bunch of likes is something someone invented. Um, but at, to me, the the learning, well, the learning and the exercises. To me, I want to be able to direct it back to how the human body moves and locomotes, and how the gait cycle works, and how we move in alternation. And I do believe in bilateral exercises. I'm not saying I don't believe in that, but I'm just saying the way we coach stuff. Like, who invented knees out in a squat? Who invented <laughs> through your heels? Where did this like? We are a young industry, and people act like these these things are just the way it is. And I, you see, I see it. I, you know, I see, I see my athletes, like when I was at Cal, I would have other athletes like occasionally telling, you know, trying to help out their teammates. They're like, you know, through the heels. I'm like, who told you that? How do you know that? How do you know this is the right thing? And, and so I just think a lot about, or even movement prep, uh, who, why, when, so if we're in nature, do we see movement prep? Like if an animal is being chased, I mean, I, I get it. It's different. It's that, that, that's a little bit of a straw man, you know? Okay, like their, their warm-ups are good because obviously an animal has zero warm-up if it's running from somebody. But how did we get to this place where, okay, we're in the weight room, let's activate XYZ muscles. And, and we treat it from, it's like when you look at the bias and the inherent bias, it is a very overcoming concentric bias. It's a muscle-centric bias. It's a machine-based bias. If we're looking at in the laws of human nature, Robert Greene talked about uh, qualitative thinking and quantitative thinking. And I use that term because I think in the book is actually masculine thinking and feminine thinking. And that triggers off, I think, part of people's brains like, oh, like, you know, that. Um, so I like just thinking qualitative and quantitative. And the uh, qualitative model is a machine-based model. It's the human body is parts and how do each of these parts work. And it, it's like a, it's like a, um, like you would, you would go about like doing an algebra class or a calculus class. It's a, it's a, a linear systems based thinking. Whereas the quali the qualitative is, is a how do things interrelate to each other? And I think they're both important, but I just think that training athletes has just been so one-sided in a machine and act activate this muscle. And it's like, look, I can do TKEs and it's, might not do anything, you know, like I'm saying, like it might not do zero to the system. Like it's like, okay, here's your quad. Um, but I think, so I've definitely a, a look at a very a holistic approach, almost like a, a kids on the playground, if you will, on some sense. Like, cause if you take kids on the playground and you amplify it, meaning maybe some of these movements are, have more intense, they have more punch, they have more strength component to it. But the, the mentality of, of playing and enjoyment and smiling is there like and that almost being like the president that's what Rafe Kelly talks about like this is the president and I'm not anti hard work 
I mean, if, if it comes to like grinding stuff out, I mean, I've, I've been there myself and I've put athletes through brutal workouts as a track coach. I mean, I, always within reason, I've never been like a kill, you know, a, a destroy people of volume type person, but I, I'll, I'll demand things out of people. But at the same time, I think at the core, like if you aren't going in every week and at least like having that basic human, like, like you're happy to be here, like you're happy, there's a, there's a social element to it. There's a learning element to it. Like I'm excited to learn this new thing. There's a skill element like that. I think that those are really important things that I think sometimes that we miss or a lot of times we miss not seeing the forest from the trees or not being able to read the label from inside the bottle. And so a lot of it, I think, I, I think I mentioned like I, I was turned off as an early intern in strength and conditioning. I think it's, I think, and I never knew why I was just like, I'm just not stimulated here. Just saying, do these three things and clean, do this and squat. Because I think what I understand now about myself back then was that those were invented things. And, and I was looking for that feeling I got as a young trainee, like, wow, this is like, I feel alive. And I just wasn't feeling that same thing in this environment where everything was trying to be reduced to, xyz and so i've that has been a big growth of mine just if you ask what my philosophy is it's just trying to to here's the two poles of quantitative and qualitative we call it the art and the science but i i think that even brings up some like which is better that brings up the thing of which is better i don't i'm not saying which is better i'm just saying how do you train as a human and then Let's use everything we have to amplify that. Let's use the data in the sports science. Let's use the gait analysis and let's use motor learning and psychology. Let's use it all to make take what's human and then make amplify that so we can be the best we can be. And maybe that's the best way I can kind of explain it. And uh, if we said, what's my philosophy, that would be, that would be it. So. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. I and mean, we sat down on Sunday with Eamon and, and Boo and one thing that came very clear to me was with with you was the the importance of the experimentation that you put on yourself um, to to figure things out and just play with things, see what works, see how things feel. How much has that played a part in you developing not only your philosophy but how you work day to day? Like just test it on myself. How does this feel? How can I manipulate this one thing to get the outcome that I want? How important has that been? That's it's absolutely massive. Like it is, it is almost as far as being a coach. Like I count it as my work hours. It's not even, it's not even like this. All like work stressful. I'm just gonna go work out. It's like this is work, but this is also awesome. Um, and I think it was either these are two two very different people. I don't remember who posted this. It was. I'll just say I just saw this posted. It is it was like a, here's how a coach should structure their day, and it, it won't be exactly like this, but it's like. 33% coaching others, 33% learning. And actually, whose day is like this? But this is probably, <laughs> but 33% coaching others, 33% learning, 33% working on yourself. And I mean, obviously, that would be, you would, it would have to be a kind of a utopian environment, I think, for that to really be a reality. But I, I mean, I'll tell you, I've learned um, the insights I get, like, it's like, you know, your brain is, we have these four brain modes. We have uh, a beta resting state. You know, I don't, I don't remember how many hertz it is, but it may be 12 to 30 or something. I'm, in fact, check me later. <laughs> then you have the next one, which is alpha, which that's that creativity. That's that, like, you're, you're in the shower and you hit that insight hits you. That's like a receptive insight state. And so for me, that workout is my alpha state. And that's where, like all this stuff I've been learning from be it in person, be it um, uh, someone I had on the podcast, a book I read, that's where all that stuff kind of comes together. 
and it, it outputs in a way that I think is hopefully meaningful to the athlete. Uh, and I think the thing that I've also had a challenge with is we talk about a lot of coaches have the tendency, well, to just have their athletes what they did. And I also fully realize that, like, I am not the same athlete as a lot of you guys. Um, I, I mean, for the, for whatever the neuro, I know there's a debate about the exact neuroscience, but Christian Thibodeau has like a neurotyping system, basically five different ways to train athletes based off of personality types. And I am an elastic, high novelty, uh, kind of ADD a little bit athlete. And so I realize I cannot project what I like onto an athlete who might be more like not like I'm going to do one task at one time. And I might like wait, like I, I, I like personally, like I like weightlifting, but if I do too much of it, as opposed to the ratio of plyometrics and elastic work, it can throw me off. And I realize I cannot project that same ratio onto every athlete. So that's like the hard part for me. And I think that's, that's a really hard part in coaching is putting yourself truly in the athlete's shoes and really understanding what they feel from, um, I guess, not just an objective, but an intuitive mindset. Because if you look at how workouts actually get written at the end of the day, it's an intuitive, that's an intuitive process. I think we all start from like a template, you know, we start, okay, let's, here's the, this coach to use, I'm going to start using it. But then over time you start intuiting and say, well, how did this athlete feel about this? And, and then it just really gets into that, like, I guess you could say, um, uh, qualitative aspect of things. And so I think the best way to be qualitative is to experience yourself. You have to, and I've, I've been able to do a good job of it as part of my career. The thing I think I do kick myself is I, I wish I would have spent more time. Actually, I spent a lot of time as a strength coach for swimmers and I did get in the water and learn the strokes and the turns and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, I, I feel like I could have done more of it, you know, like in more like actual, more fatiguing workouts. Like, what do you feel when you get out of the water? Uh, and, and I mean, it's just cause I, you can only go so far. I think you're, you're connecting with an athlete where they know you've been there. And I, I think of it too, as I think of it as like, uh, maybe Kung Fu is something we could all, I don't know if you, I, I didn't really watch that many Kung Fu movies, but if you are going to learn like, I don't know, like Bat, Batman or you know, like anything, or it's always the hero's journey. You always go to the place you learn from the master and then you come back with your new knowledge. But that master always went through it themselves. Like the, the the Kung Fu master, the Shaolin master, they can do everything and they can kick your ass, right? Like, because they know it, they have wisdom. And I feel like it's it's experiential. And so I think that just being able to, I feel like I'm rabbit trailing, but like that's where I, just yeah. have, to, I, have, to, I have to try to learn the best I can to be able to put my myself in whatever my athletes are feeling emotional, uh, emotionally and just how their body is responding to the work that I'm doing. And then just be, try to really pick up on through the session, like how, how are you liking this? How are you liking this? And I, I know I'm not like trying to like, this isn't like a menu where I'm trying to cater every need. I do need to be hard at some point. And, and there does need to be like a, look, this is the line and you're going to just have to do this today and you're gonna have to deal with it. But then at the, there is, like generally speaking, I need to be giving you stuff that you are responsive to. Cause I can't just be, if I'm just like, this is the way it is, there's going to be people who check out. And then a lot of times I think coaches might complain sometimes, especially in the strength sector. We're like, Oh, these athletes just don't want to work hard. Well, maybe they just don't like the type of work that you're doing. I mean, like to me, I mean, I can work really hard in a sprint workout, 
or like even if you have me do even like a breakdance workout because I like that stuff. That's I can work really hard. But if you say, "Hey, we're going to do German volume today," today ten sets of ten. I mean, I'll I'll go for it. But I just know that I, as an elastic guy, that's going to wreck my body, and I might not be able to really take it to the well like someone who's a little more muscular will. And so, anyways, I'm always just trying to 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 put myself in athlete's shoes and really see intuitively how they're going to um, be responding to what is being given. Mm-hmm. That, that's interesting on so many levels because there's always a complaint of the ex-player getting the getting a job because he's an ex-player and that's you know i can see that people have a um an issue with that but it is that empathy for the athlete they understand and that connection is so strong and can be so valuable although that guy or girl may not be as good a technician it is that connection with the athlete that they have because they have the empathy because they've been there, they've felt it, they've done it and they can pick up on things because they've, they've, they've felt them things. So it is, it is so important. And I think that probably gets, I don't know, gets overlooked because of the negativity around the ex player getting a job. Um, it just came to me there and I just thought I'd, I'd uh, verbalize that, but I think it's really interesting. It is so important to go through that. Not you're not going to be them because you're not going to be the elite athlete, but just going through that and experiencing what they experience, I think, is so important. I think you're right. Yeah, just as much as we can. Yeah, because you're right. Like we can't. I can't. I mean, if I'm training bass NBA players, like I can't. There's no, no. way I can see what it's like to feel to be in the NBA. Absolutely but not. just to to try as much as you can to to latch onto that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the the plyos and the elasticity in terms of your body type. How how have you become known for this area? Was that a, was that a, a conscious thing, or was that just following your own intuition and doing what you enjoyed and enjoyed doing and enjoyed reading? Oh Speaking yeah, like, about- like how I kind of came to be kind of a well known yeah. in terms of plyo. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, if you. <laughs> So my first, actually, I, I kind of lied. I did actually didn't start writing at age twenty three. I started a blog on it. it was it's a it might be defunct now, but it was called Track Shark, and that was when I was twenty one or twenty two. And it was a blog where I was like just talking about my training, and I guess people read that too. It's funny because that year, ironically, that year I did terrible relatively. <laughs> like I jumped, I high jumped two two meters fourteen in my junior year. That year I started writing. I was like, oh, I guess I'm hot stuff. And uh, people read my blog, and I only jumped like two meters ten that year, two meters oh nine. It was really a poor year. Uh, so, anyways, but I I, I just I, I hit YouTube at the right time to be honest. Like I, I started um, when I was at Wisconsin Lacrosse. I was putting YouTube videos out on just like depth jumps and hurdle hops and just very basic stuff. Like if I would have started that now on this YouTube and Instagram, no one would even look twice. It would be nothing, you know. And those videos are super grainy. And I, but but you just hit it right at the right time. There just wasn't other videos on plyometrics and depth jumps. And so I think that combined with me blogging and stuff kind of worked together and and got me a little following there. And that was my obsession for, and it still is. I mean, it's always going to be a part of me. It's just, I just, there's still something in me, even at 36. I know I'm not going to set my high jump PR, but I still want to like, I still want to be good, man. Like I really just, and it, and it's just, it, that is the thing going older is like you have these workouts that aren't like great and it just still bugs me on some level. <laughs> I'm better about it now, but it's just like in my blood, man. I just really, I'm always, um, you know, experimenting with everything I can. And that just, 
I think the writing is just the output of my own just journey in that. And I, I mean, it's a good one, but I, so I, yeah, it was, it was the blog and the YouTube was the big one. And then I wrote a book called Vertical Foundations in I think 2014, which was, which just needs to be updated like nobody's business. I mean, like I would say get it, but I was like, <laughs> I, look, I read that thing compared to what I, I, I've learned uh, in the last, especially in the last like four or five years from a dairy and bar. And I'm like, that thing needs to be updated so badly. Uh, so maybe that book too. And then I just always trying to post on it and just trying to, I used to write a lot more articles for Just Fly Sports on it as well, but I haven't written a real jump article in quite a while. And just It's always on the radar just because it's something I'm interested in. So we're just going to take a very quick break in this chat with Joel. Hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, we discuss a little bit more around horizontal and vertical jumps, importance of variation, and also focusing on what's going on at the foot, which, as I said at the start, leads on, to, on nicely to some chat around Joel's new book, which he's got coming out very, very soon. And we'll add to the plethora of information on Joel's website, which I, I would absolutely recommend people checking out. So over to part two with Joel. As always, love your feedback. Let me know what you think. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Output Sport, a Swiss army knife for optimizing off-field performance. So Output Sports have developed a one-stop portable tool for comprehensive, valid, and reliable athlete assessment. So for the first time ever, you can access metrics such as jump height, barbell velocity, Nordics, and speed agility, all with the single wearable sensor. So Output brings unparalleled efficiency to athlete testing to allow sports organizations, performance centers, teams, and athletes to make data-driven decisions. So this technology has originated from eight years of research and co-developed with over 40 sporting partners across the globe. You can learn more about Output on OutputSports.com or follow them on social media at OutputSports where you can also schedule a demo. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by AthleteMonitoring.com the world's most comprehensive, versatile, and cost-effective athlete health and performance management platform for elite sports. So athletemonitoring.com is trusted by top development programs, universities, professional teams, Olympic programs, national sports organizations, and research institutes worldwide. It streamlines data collection, centralizes the management of wellness, training, and performance, medical and testing, and administrative data. It also simplifies interpretation with best practice analytics and evidence-based methods to optimize performance and reduce injury risk. So with all these features on a single platform, AthleteMonitoring.com seamlessly brings key stakeholders together to build healthier athletes, more efficient organizations, and long-lasting successes. To see what AthleteMonitoring.com can do for you, visit AthleteMonitoring.com and schedule a free demo or follow them on Twitter at Athlete Monitor. This episode is also sponsored by Omega Wave, which is the only non-invasive at rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train via both brain and cardiac analysis. So using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy level and autonomic nervous system balance allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize your training and this optimized performance. 
Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position, and this data can be used by the medical profession to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. The measurement only takes four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to our Windows of Trainability concept. Omega Wave is used by hundreds of elite sport athletes, military and law enforcement agencies. They are also an official partner of the UFC Performance Institute. So to learn more about Omega Wave, visit their website, omegawave.com, or visit their social media channels. It's just going more on the technical path now, and it's one thing that I picked out. I think you may have written an article about it, but it's definitely one of the social posts about two paths of training. I know this is something that when I put it in the list, it was it was uh, it jumped out at you and said, "Yes, let's let have a little chat around that." Do you just want to explain where that came from and a little bit more about it, and then we'll, like I say, dive in a little bit deeper? Yeah, so that's it's really been something on my radar ever since I've just really started in strength and conditioning, and you start to just see. Well, I'll say even actually before I was a full time strength coach, I was teaching a class on strength and conditioning, like a three credit lecture at Wilmington College. And I, I enjoy doing that stuff. And I, it's funny because I, I never had a strength coach as an athlete. I was a figure it out yourself person. I had a coach writing workouts, but no one was coaching me on how I was squatting or doing. I, I, figure, I just figured all that stuff out my, on my own. And sometimes I think like if I would have had someone teaching me all that stuff by the book, I actually am not sure that I, I don't know that I would have did what I did, honestly, on the college level. And I say that because when I was 25, 26, I'm making the curriculum for this class out of Zatiorsky's uh, Science and Practice. And I'm also in parallel, and that's a great book, by the way. I, nothing against that book is awesome. It was more, what, what got me was I was going through the NSCA um, National Strength and Conditioning Association, like how to do a squat, like, because I'm trying to prep people to take the CSCS. And as I'm like, this is the at 25, I am for the first time as a strength coach, because I didn't even have like mentors really like teaching. I don't know. I don't know. So I don't even know how I got jobs. Like, <laughs> I, 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 so I'm learning. Uh, it's like, okay, you put your knees out at this angle. And I've heard you push a push through the heels and all this stuff. So as I'm teaching the class, age 25, which is still my high performance years, I'm still competing in track and doing all the meets with my athletes all the time. And and I and I'm I'm I was the most powerful I've ever been as a human being at about age 25, 26, 30, like 35 is standing vertical, which actually that's should be I should say that in metrics. What is that? Like 80, 85 centimeters, and then you know, cleaning the 120 some kilos. And I was I was doing all right for for you know my but my my competition lift or my track and field jumps had gone down and my stride length was shorter. And it's like, why is all this happening? And so what I, I believe a big part of that was just over-reliance on bilateral sagittal plane. And then also, like, you look at a squat and how a squat's coached. It's like, okay, knees out and through the heels. Well, let's, like, what's going on here? Because if you watch Olympic lifters actually catching a, a, a catch out of the bottom, they're catching that bar in the front squat, you will see the knees tick in a little mm -hmm. bit on that reversal. And yet... People don't, like I said, the answers are found in nature because I don't think those people are being, they, well, I don't think they're not being coached to let those knees tick in. It's happening because of how we are innately designed and how we're wired to work with elastic energy. And, but yet if you, if I go and I coach someone up and I like, as if I'm doing a service to them, <laughs> which it's not, uh, I'm telling them, so what's happening there? Well, I'm, I'm yielding, I'm heading into the bottom of a squat. I'm turning knees out. I'm externally rotating my tibias. Um, 
it, but but the problem is that bottom of the squat, that folded position, is a pronated position, and, and so by nature, in actuality, the the arches should be flattening, and the tibia should be internally rotating. So what I'm kind of teaching someone to do is the exact, as far as the shins are concerned and the femurs are concerned, is I'm teaching someone to do the exact opposite of loading. I'm I'm putting a supination bias on the load. And then, you know, the unload is kind of, now I am in supination because everything's externally rotating on the unload. But I'm kind of, in my mind, I'm kind of messing with what Mother Nature would have people do naturally as they squat because, like, I go back to my first point, like, someone invented this. (laughs) And so, I, I, I found this first as an athlete who became less elastic by doing all this stuff. And then, and, and, and again, if I was just a basketball player, though, or a football player, it, no one might have ever really known because, well, my clean went up, my standing vertical went up. Um, so Job done. Yeah, okay, good, <laughs> done. But when it came to, yeah, exactly. But what about RS, like RSI, you could get maybe RSI wasn't as good. Um, but then I go to my actual competition movements, full speed sprinting, stride length, actual high jump, actual triple jump, all this stuff. And... It wasn't. It was worse, and so. But that's just like high reactive. The high. But but at the end of the day, though, we want to operate with that free energy as optimally as we can. Because I would also venture to say I was probably a less robust athlete from a just a, a the gait cycle perspective. How am I storing and returning elastic energy now? Um, and it's kind of nitpicky. It is getting really in. The, but I do think there is something to that. And. Again, yeah, like like how do we say we did a good job? Like you said, job done. I got this. I had this happen. But I think there's always things that we can do a little better. And so for me, it's like really drawing a line. And it's saying, okay, is is this movement, where is lo- the load and where is the unload in this movement? And where is the pronation? Where is the supination? Basically just saying, look, like, and a lot of times, like, like I think Pat Davidson uh, wrote a really good article called knees in for the win and squatting this was like five years ago and he was talking about just that olympic lifters knees are coming in and he was talking about what's happening with the gait cycle with the pronation at the bottom those knees are going to tick in and then you get that supination locking response knees are coming up but it's just i think so often that we 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 think we're doing good by coaching someone up when at the end of the day their body is doing it better than we can coach and then, so the ability to realize that and realize how and when the body is doing a good thing is really important. And so back to my, my post is I just think that so often these, the, on the uh, quantitative side, the machine-based side is more the tendency to, uh, and I would just, just force, overcome, grit, grind, uh, activate. And, and on the other side, on the quality, the quantitative, or qualitative side, sorry, I had it right, um, is more of the um, letting, is the feeling, the sensing, the letting the body kind of flow and do its thing once you've created the polarities. And I just think the answer is not, the answer isn't just, if you just do one pole or the other, you won't get the optimal result. Because if you are all just feeling and sensing and you don't have any like structure, and, and I think there is some strength that is important. Uh, you're not going to reach your highest potential. But if everything is just, you know, machine points, X, Y, Z, do it exactly like this, you're also not going to reach the highest because now the athlete never got to flow and find their own solution to the movement problem. And so I just, to me, uh, if you just look at most stuff in the weight room that happens, it's, it's, we're measuring the concentric stuff. Uh, We don't really take, I I mean, I mean, I think you know, with RSI is the most elastic thing we can do. 
Um, and so I just, my goal is just to, to really drive home this point where let's just understand what elasticity is and let's, and we, we already know what strength is like, but let's really make a drive to understand what elasticity is. And let's just see if those two concepts can come together a little bit more in the average lift that we coach. Uh, I hope I, I hope I explained it well there. No, no, absolutely. I think it's it's something that it probably goes back to something that has come up loads of times that we focus as strength and conditioning coaches on the strength. I know that it's not typically conditioning what you're talking about, but very strength orientated. Feel comfortable with, like you said, right at the start with the two times five, with the do this. It's very structured. It's very rigid. It's very, we can process it in our head because it's in a box. When it comes to the other side, it's a little bit more fluid. It's a little bit more scary, and especially when you when you um, were talking about your experiences, um, not not getting what you, that that feel from strength and conditioning. It was for me. It was quite the opposite. I wanted that structure. I was happy in that box, which I think is quite probably quite common. I was okay with that. Uh, probably in a, in a bit of a comfort zone. And I think as soon as you step out of that more into a, like you have, into a track and field environment, it's scary because there's lots going on. Um, it is fluid. It is, um, you know, it's, it's not as structured. So, um, yeah, definitely, uh, definitely explain that perfectly. Oh, th thanks. Oh, that's all right. Um, so just to put two polar opposites again in our next little um, thing I'd like to discuss, horizontal versus vertical jumps now i think again this is what we discussed on on sunday with boo and he gave a um quite a concise answer with his with his ratios and how he how he splits his his, his vertical his horizontal is the is is his not theory but is his thoughts around that similar to how you would program vertical and horizontal jumping yeah yeah exactly i think for especially for I mean, track, it's a little different now, but for team sports, because in track, your sport is the horizontal jump, if it's horizontal jumps, you know, and Dan Paff had a good example as well of like, uh, I remember him talking about a high jumper that trained with the triple jumper, like all the fall and did tons and tons of bounding, but the high jumper needs to go vertical. And then by the time he actually got to high jumping, his rhythm was totally off because it was just too much horizontal stuff. So I, I agree. Abu had said he really skews the ratio in favor of the vertical versus the horizontal plyos. And I think, and I, I think I mentioned this on um, the mastermind as well, but I, I look at like a, a needs-based thing. Like, I mean, do I want you, um, is it cool that you as a team sport athlete, I can teach you how to bound? You know, sure. But at the end of the day, you're not a triple jumper. Like you don't get extra points for being able to bound perfectly. And I, I mean, to, for me, the, to, it's more like if you can just bound and demonstrate that you can store and release elastic energy on some level, that's the big thing from bounding that I want to see from you. That starts at the foot, the level of the foot, because if the foot doesn't have a lot of like good tensegrity to it, that elastic energy transfer is not going to be great. And so I think that's where you get a lot of like the rudiment type little, little quick shorter hops that are related to the foot function and the storage and release of energy. And then you can make the bounding, build the bounding on, on some of that shorter storage release, but generally skewing in the nature of vertical, I think is good. I think if you look at sport too, we look at strength and conditioning or athletic performance as filling the bucket the athlete doesn't get. And what's the athlete doing in sport? I would say 99, even in basketball, it's probably 99% alternating push, pull, run, gate related stuff, maybe 1% jumping because yeah, they're going to jump a bunch of times in the game, maybe a hundred times, but 
how many steps did they take? How many miles did they run? How many unilateral cuts did they take it? The, the, the ratio of it's going to be by far skewed as, as this push-pull engine. And so, I mean, that being said, I do think that I've, that's another thing too with even the elastic versus concentric is to me um, just the fact that we, our engine is a horizontal based engine. But now that being said, I, with athletes, because they're already getting so much horizontal work in their sport, my job is I want to just make that um, work that you do as good as possible. Meaning I might use some horizontal plyometrics to try to make you a better runner. I want to use that storage release. I mean, and bounding is not running. I will tell you that right away. Bounding and running are totally different things. I am, as an athlete, and I've seen athletes like this, I have an awesome bounder. And my running, if you look at those Soviet charts of how fast your 100 should be based off your standing triple jump, it said I should be running like a 10-6. I am nowhere close to a 10-6, not even close. And so if there's actually a mistake in overbounding and things because bounding is really long. It's really drawn out. And in sprinting, things are coming back, back to you real fast. And you have to rely, you're in a much more folded state, you're in a much more compressed state, and everything's, the impulses have to work a lot quicker. And so even when I do bounding, and this is even for like track athletes, I put a priority on, on a faster actually contact time in a lot of my bounding. I'll play with the contact times and say, you know, a lot of times it's like, all right, uh, here's 20 meters, see how few jumps it takes you to get 20 meters. Okay, cool. But like, those jumps we were just really long and drawn out and the con you know we talked slow and fast rate of force development and maybe that was a relatively slower rate because that you know so i i my home base i know boo talks about his home base workouts my home base is is elastic energy and fast and i try to build on that home base uh so and then vertical i think vertical is and here's the thing too a lot of vertical jumps in sport are um our, our jumps that are not, we talk about stiffness and rigidity, but even those jumps are not completely rigid in nature. Um, in a more controlled environment of the gym, they are more so because we can drop from a box and, and stick it. And then the, then the shin is only going to drop a couple degrees. It's going to be a, a, but in sport, watch someone take off, off to a running two leg jump or a, even a running one leg jump, there's going to be a little bit of a shin translation from a horizontal back to a vertical position. The shin's always moving. And so that is kind of a, there is a yielding component to that in sport itself. And so where, where we fill in the bucket or the space, I feel like in the, in the weight room is, well, here's, let me show you a more stiff, a more rigid movement. Um, but that's the thing is if you do too much of that, that's not like if I did way too much of that, you aren't getting the jumps in sport. Now that's not good either. Uh, so anyways, I'm all that to say is we don't jump as much as we move horizontally. I want to use horizontal movements. And when I say horizontal plyos, maybe that's straight leg bounding into a sprint, flex leg bounding into a sprint, um, different, different motions like that. Uh, even maybe quick little single leg bounding type hops to work on that cycle and then take it into a sprint stuff. That's going to just make your sprinting more balanced and better. Um, and by balance, I mean like anterior chain, posterior chain. Bounding helps you sense the posterior chain, and you can kind of put that sensation into that. So I want to make you a better runner. Uh, and then the vertical is just we we want to make we don't have the chance in sport to drop off a higher box and, and, and amplify gravity or create a situation where we can do repeated jumps and focus on rhythms and the way the foot's working and operating. So I think the vertical does offer a little bit more room that we can, can build on and fill buckets that they aren't getting in, a, in an appropriate way.
Mm-hmm. Just to confirm, it was it was the two to one, wasn't it? The two vertical to the one horizontal. Yeah, I, I think it was that ratio. Yeah, I didn't remember yeah. the exact ratio. I didn't yeah. want to say. I didn't want to say because I, I, I was just going to say three to one. I was like, I'm going to mess that up. But I just knew it was more. <laughs> I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was. I think you said it before, but you've you've mentioned that, and we mentioned it again on Sunday uh, about the importance of variation. I think it was a really interesting chat between the three of you guys um, talking about that. I think it was Boo that may have instigated that, um, given his his thoughts on the topic. What's your thoughts on the topic in terms of? The importance of a variation when it comes to to plyos and jumps. Yeah, so I'll start with with track with, and just be very quick on it because I don't want to make mm. too much about track. Because in track, I I'm a really big variation with stuff because I think, like I said, the mastermind. If you do the same hurdle hops for the whole training year, it's just the the like Booth likes to say the proprioceptive variability becomes so low, and you're doing the exact same kind of contacts, and these are high load contacts. The, I, I don't know if this is exactly what happens. I can say this and try to sound smart, but you might say those very specific joint receptors that are involved in that very specific plyo that you're doing over and over again. And a reminder, again, plyometrics are more rigid entities, especially vertical ones, than what we see in sport. There's less shin fall. There's less yielding oftentimes than what we see in sport. So these are high-intensity constructs. And if I'm doing the same thing to the same joint pattern over and over, my brain's eventually going to say, I don't, I'm going to stop giving you an output because I don't want to get hurt. And, you know, I don't want to be that caveman in the jungle with a, you know, a messed up leg and the tiger's going to eat me or whatever <laughs> to bring you back to survival. So from just a pure, like distributing the load perspective, we need to, to distribute things around a little bit. And so we can, that would be one. And then Boo has said it, proprioceptive variability, um, just the body wanting to sense different things. And what I ultimately, I like to think of it this way, like think of everything, every plyo workout as a new skill to be mastered. And so the, the, the change doesn't have to be huge to master that new skill. I don't think it should ever get to the obstacle course on Instagram, you know, point, because that's just, I mean, at that point, what are you training? You know, you always have to ask, you sit down and say, what am I getting out of this specifically from an adaptation standpoint? If the, you know, you don't want to say it's the ability to be at a better at an obstacle course. <laughs> Not that I think I like <laughs> obstacle courses for kids. I think those are absolutely. Good. Yeah. Uh, so, but I, I just, it's like small changes to the rhythm, small changes to the, the horizontal to vertical amplitudes, like hurdle hops. You could just make the hurdles a little farther apart. They could be a little closer. Um, they could be, you could have some small hurdles, three small hurdles, and then three big hurdles and say, just notice how the rhythm changes. Uh, one of the, my favorite plyometrics that I just started doing recently as I've started working with athletes here in Ohio is just having athletes do small, like just no hurdles at all. These are vertical, just small double leg hops. And we want to make sure the foot's working properly, storage and release. They're getting the timing of everything correct. And then when they get to, say, a five-meter section, now do some high tuck jumps. Okay, now go back down to the low, small amplitude hops. How did it feel differently? And athletes, they'll feedback. They like that stuff. And I think it's just because we oftentimes live in an everything max mentality. You know, we're going to do 20 depth jumps. They're all as high as you can go. <laughs> well, God, you're going to be like totally fried after that, you know, like, and I think about this is one thing I've done with just my depth jumping, the way I prescribe it and the way I've done it myself. And I've gotten great feedback is, and this was from, and I, this is a study I quote all the time. And I should do air quote study because nobody can find this. And it's probably in German somewhere. And if one of your listeners finds it, like, let me know, because I get asked about this a lot. And all I know is that 
It was referenced in Sports Science by Thomas Kurz, which is like a 1990 book. And then Dan John referenced it in Easy Strength. And that's basically long jumpers. There was two sets of long jumpers. One long jumper group would jump um, as far as they could every jump. You know, I don't know. There's 10 practice jumps and they do as far as they can every single jump. The other group jumped to different like targets in the pit, almost like parkour kind of. And Rafe Kelly, who I mentioned, has spoke extremely well of the ability of parkour athletes to actually achieve pretty like within a reasonable percentage of like the world record in like a various long jump without actually specifically training for it. So maybe there's something to that with this, but like, and I, I mean, I, I don't know how, maybe it's like they jumped 23, 24 feet or I don't know exactly what it was, but pretty good for not training for it when the world record is 29. But, um, the, the, the second group, yeah, jump for the hoops and not max every time. And then at the end they tested, well, who jumped further? And it was the group that didn't go max every time. It was the group that jumped to all the different targets. And in motor learning, there's different theories for why. That I think the one presented in Easy Strength was called schema theory, like the brain or the cerebellum has these different programs that and I think in Franz Bosch's book, Strength uh, Strength Training Coordination, I like there's like a little page that had all these like different like like um, these colored balls for all these different like skill A, skill B, skill C. Here's all the interlaps of all these things. So you could on one end, you could just say you're building a more robust uh, motor program by inducing all these different levels. But I think there's more to it than that. I think one, jumping to not just a max distance takes the pressure off. It takes the adrenaline off a little bit. Because if I'm being asked to max every time, it's like, adrenaline, go, like as hard as you can. And I'm not, if you look at like the way Marvin Marinovich trained athletes too, like everything was just fast paced, reactive. And I do think there's a good quality there. But I do think when we just ask, all our, our only ask is everything being a pure maximal output. I think that it generates a lot of adrenaline. It's a lot of mental and emotional, like go, go, go. And it also, I think, decreases the, the schema, I guess you could say. And so I've had good um, uh, success saying, okay, let's say we're going to do French contrast. And you're going to do a squat. You're going to do a depth jump. You're going to do like a speed, like a squat clean or a speed squat. And then you're going to do some overspeed jumps, something like that. In the depth jump, I'll say, let's say we're doing three depth jumps. And in a traditional French contrast, those three would be as high as they could. Um, hopefully, there is an outcome. Because if you just depth jump into space and into nothing, la, I'm jumping, you will not jump as well as if you have a problem to solve. This was actually my master's thesis research. See, I said I'm going to come back to this. Uh, and <laughs> Get I, in there. <laughs> yeah. And so... It's buried in the, I don't even have, that's how bad it is. I was so done with that. I didn't even keep a book, a little book they give you for myself. I just gave some to my family, friends, and I didn't even keep the master's research myself. I'm like, I'm done. I'm not doing research. I'm, this is not my wiring to do this. It's some people's. It's not mine. Uh, but when I found, what I found is I had people doing depth jumps to, uh, they drop and then they jump and they'd hit a target. They would jump and they jump over a hurdle that was preset for their jumping ability, or they just jump in as high as they can into space with no target. And what I found is that compared to the outcome goals, having no target or nothing, it, you will jump about five percent less high. And I, I think it's because it doesn't give the body anything to organize around. If we look at this sequence of all these joints loading and unloading, it's like, oh, I have to touch that, and the brain's like, okay, I got the program for that. But if it's just, I just have to jump as high. It's there's more like forebrain in that i think stuff just doesn't coordinate as well you know you almost have to have a powerful imagery of jumping high so anyways the rabbit trail i just wanted to mention my research that's the only reason it's i fine. get in there <laughs> <laughs> anyways uh so what i'll do now is like let's say there's jump to a target okay vertex uh first jump is maybe 90 percent 
And I just say, get better every jump, just every jump, get better. And I find that's just, uh, it's, it's a little more like, like relaxing to the athlete, but they still end up that last jump is probably going to be a better output than maybe you would have had with the first max jump in a normal set. Cause it's like, it just gets you ready and spending time at, uh, I spent time at Cal with, um, world-class swim coaches, people who have been the, um, the Olympic head coach on the men's and women's side. So uh, respectively. So I like, I learned a ton by watching swim workouts and like there's so much gold in here that we can extrapolate to track and strength and conditioning and a lot of times that what you would hear you wouldn't hear this in track workouts a lot but you heard swimming is i want you to do these like x these swims like say these 50s and every, and each one get better get better you'd hear that a lot and that's not something i ever really heard in track or the weight room but it was something that it kind of intuitively makes sense because swimming is a tough sport you don't want to talk about adrenaline if you're going to put the pedal down on every one of those swims, you're going to be bathed in adrenaline and your recovery is going to be really bad. So it's kind of like you want to, you want to keep that anxiety a little lower and you also, you're building a more robust program. Again, I, I do, and I'll con contrast that by saying max is important. Like if we're not like, but even I think um, Stuart McMillan had talked about training, like you don't like training at like 90% or something like that versus just straight a hundred everything. I think he's talked about that too. Like we can have good um, gains by not, because because uh, what happens in between 90 and a hundred? Because I think about, it, it's like, okay, sweet spot, maybe 93%, you know, meant trying, but then every percent above that, you're maybe bringing in a muscular compensation. You're trying harder. Uh, uh, you know what I'm saying? Like there's things that are happening that eventually when you get to a perceived 100 actually make you slower. So I just like that spectrum of doing things that perceived less. Um, and I think that'd be really cool grounds for actually, like I'd love it if there was more research on that stuff rather than just the long jump study from the 80s because I think that it could be a powerful change in the way that we um, you know, coach all these things and allow athletes to explore and experiment um, so that's a variation in the, the vertical that I really, I like to bring that in all the time. I do want to max, but I don't want it to be every rep, you know, it might be every third rep or something like that. And, and that, I think that's where I've changed my tune a little bit. Mm -hmm. You mentioned it a couple of times and it's going to be the last thing, um, I ask you about, and that's why so much focus on what's going on at the foot. And it's come up a couple of times. It's come up with Lee Taft when it comes to change direction, deceleration, it's come up with Lauren talking about a similar a similar thing, but in this context, why why so much focus on what's going on the foot, and why such an interest from from your point of view? Yeah, that's a good. Thanks for asking that one because that's been a huge like passion of mine the last couple of years. I'm actually working on a book on it that I'm trying to get finished up, and that's for me. I learn by writing a book because then I'll say when you write a book, you realize everything you don't know. So. That's helped me to hopefully have a little more humility when I start to explain this because the foot is an absolute miracle of nature. I mean, it is like the more you, and even to the point where it's so complex, I actually know very, very good therapists who are like, the foot's too complex. I'm just going to look at what's happening from the hip above it to help. That's where I go first. I'm not going to mess with the foot right away. Um, I've noticed over time that really good uh, sprint coaches or pioneer thinking uh, sports performance coaches, and by that I mean Chris Corfis was the first sprint coach that I uh, was watching his early videos where a real big priority was on the foot. Um, Marv Marinovich and Gary Marinovich and the Marinovich training systems um, who have uh, some pretty good notoriety I think in that world. 
also really big in hands and feet, like sensory hands and feet. Like if you watch some of the super cat stuff they do, they even do a lot of hand stuff where the, that's on the super cat. There's flicking, like, you know, versus think of everything we do. It's just bar, hold, grip. Mm. That's our mode. Mm-hmm. Versus like, no, the hands do more than that. And the, the thing is the hands mirror the feet. Uh, sometimes when you see sprinters like this, with uh, they'll have the open hand a lot, where it's actually like doing this kind of thing when you're watching them them sprint. So this is a pretty stark contrast to like, I mean, if you watch athletes who are running fast, running a 40, 100, I would say for every like one person, and I don't think you're going to find anyone in the Olympic final doing this off the line. It's always going to be some manipulation, the hammy, the pinkies out. The hand's going to manipulate the foot. And so especially too, you'll see this, um, like a big thing that I talk about is like, I got this from a Darian Barr mentor to me, is like the idea of when the pinky toe or the, the pinky finger is up, that will reciprocate like the pinky toe being up and the pinky toe, when the pinky toe is up, and I'm probably jumping ahead a little bit here, but uh, when the pinky toe is up, it, uh, it actually activates the arches of the foot very well. And so when a Darian, the first time a Darian was telling me, Hey, uh, I want you to do these hops and I want you to lift your pinky toe up. Like, um, I guess that would be extend your pinky toe. He, he told me to look at my hand and this is totally subconscious to me as my finger was out like this. Oh, wow. So the hand and the ipsilateral foot are on, they're talking to each other. They're on the same page. You can see what someone's foot's doing by what their hand's doing. A lot of times, um, John Garrish was on my podcast. He's a strength coach in Florida at Broward Prep and he would have his athletes do different hand positions for their sprints uh, with the intention like like you know, like this or like um, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to, I don't know all the cultural, like the cultures are enhanced. I don't want to offend anybody by doing these different signs. <laughs> I'm just saying what you see, like you have a yeah. hand or I call, I invented it with a deer. I call it taco hand. Cause you want the, the transverse arch of the foot to activate more. And if you do these things, you sprint, you can feel it. And what John was saying is he would seek, um, like actual changes in the slide by slide of athletes at top end when they're doing the different hand positions, cause the feet are picking it up. And so Anyways, I want to start with the foot in training because it's, it's, it's the start point of the whole contact. And we talk about RSI, RSI being a big term. I can tell you what your RSI is for the most part before I even see you jump just by looking at your feet. And uh, the simplest point is if someone has very flat toes, so just very, very just like flat and just kind of lying there, generally speaking, and they might have grit tendencies to grip the toes while walking or moving up, I'm like, hey, uh, I want you to stand on one leg for me and do maybe some hip circles with the other leg or something like that and just start watching their feet. If I see a lot of toe gripping and some generally flat toes otherwise, I can already tell you your RSI isn't very good. Um, the reason why is because RSI starts from just being able to get off the ground fast. It starts from the arch integrity of the three arches of the foot, the transverse, the lateral and the medial longitudinal. So the, the the beauty of the foot is in nature, like there's three domes, dome-shaped structures that are giving this, this um, tensegrity to the foot. And if those domes aren't there, you're already starting off like basically jumping on sand to a, to a degree. Like you do not have that solid base, that solid little steel trampoline, if you will, to pop off of. And so I want my goal with plyometrics in general is – a plyometric, even a depth jump for someone who has that um, foot structure, like the, the arches are active, you might see some of the tendons kind of popping out through the top of the foot. You might see a little bit of curve, natural curve to the, not gripping, but a kind of a natural curve with the, the pads of the toes gently resting. If I see that, 
I know this is a person who has good tensegrity through the foot. If they're doing like a, an RSI test or they're doing a quick plyo, I know that they have the force where it needs to be first and then they can work off that. And so that really determines too, like how quickly I'll progress plyos. Cause like, I think we do this intuitively and naturally as an industry for the most part. We'll say, okay, you know, you're ready for this box when I see you're smooth and quick off the ground or your heels. Well, I think it was made of in Jimmy Radcliffe. I'm not sure, but like if you're dropping and your heels are hitting, then that's too much. Well, why would the heels hit? Well, the heels hit when those arch, the integrity of the three arches is compromised. And I think that's the problem is we think, oh, well, you're an arbitrary, your stiffness, this is air quotes, in the calf. The gastrocnemius didn't fire hard enough or something. No, it's it, it's the arch. It, the gastroc is at the mercy of some level of the joints in the foot. Um, Gary Ward, who's a, a foot and biomechanics expert, has a saying that joints act and muscles react. So the first thing that we need to look at that is of prime importance in any athletic movement is what's the skeletal structure and what's the joint alignment because the muscles are at the mercy of that. I mean, if I don't, if I have a compromised foot, you know, if I have no platform. All the gastroc strength in the world is not going to give me a stiff landing. It doesn't matter. It's 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 you're you're fighting an insurmountable battle at that point. And so I have to have good uh, tensegrity, a sound structure at the base before anything else goes. And so uh, I want to teach that first, at least components of it. For some athletes, that is a long road to the top. If you've been walking for twenty years. And I won't say 20 because all children have this. We just degenerate over time through whatever reason, um, you know, wearing too much cushiony, comfy shoes, not spending enough time getting sensation. And I think some athletes too just are more, um, just have better sensory skills innately. Like, and I see that even in my own children. Um, and so there's a variety of factors, but I want that foot to operate well first and then build on top of that. Awesome. Superb. I've kept you well over an hour with a little bit of a technical issue in between. But last but not least, where can people find the podcast, find the books, write, uh, read the blog? Where's the best place? Does the old blog still exist, by the way? Oh, the, the old, old blogs. Uh, you know what? I should look that up now. I, I <laughs> want to say I made it. Yeah, so go to – it's like if you if you Google Jumps Coach 214 and like blogger, I don't even know if blogger is still a thing, but that was it. <laughs> I swear I deleted it. I bet you there's still a post or two. Yeah, I, I'm sure. And I, it's funny to go back and look at your old writing. I mean, you know, it's uh, – so, yeah, that that would be the OG way to look up my yeah. stuff. <laughs> the new stuff, yeah, so justflysports.com, um, justflysports on Instagram, justflysports on Twitter. Um, and then it, my book's coming out. So I'm uh, super excited about uh, why – my my one out right now that's kind of my bigger book is called Speed Strength, uh, which isn't necessarily it does have some stuff on the foot in there, but a lot of it's just kind of a, a real uh, a lot of eureka and aha and reverse engineered moments in sprint biomechanics uh, through my mentorship with a Darian Bar uh, things again I found uh, both myself and an athletes I coach to be just a real enlightening practical and then as well as if you want my philosophy on just training period. Uh, all the things that go into program design and all that, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's out. And then my book on the foot is coming out. It's called best foot forward. And it's going to be, oh, oh yeah. It took me a little while to come up with that, <laughs> but it's going to be, it's literally, it's, it's been a huge like year and a half journey on just synthesizing the, the rehab side of the foot, the performance side of the foot. Uh, where do we meet in the middle? How do we train this stuff? How do we assess um, both performance and injury elements in there. So uh, injury prevention, not injury. Hopefully you don't read the book and get injured. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm excited about that one. It should be out hopefully in a few months, working hard on finishing that one. So that's what's on the radar. And yeah, thank you.
Awesome. And podcast all on all normal platforms. Oh yeah, thanks for reminding. Yeah, just live sports podcast or just live performance podcast. Sorry, I got my own podcast name wrong. Lovely. So. <laughs> thank you. It's all good. All good. Well, thank you for giving up your time. Really do appreciate it. And it's good to finally catch up and get the the podcast story and obviously everything else in between. Yeah, it was awesome. I really appreciate you having me on, Rob. Pleasure. Thanks, Joel. Speak soon. All right. Thanks for tuning in to episode 310 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Joel. So massive thanks to Joel for giving up his time in the process of setting up a new podcast studio, which I'm very, very jealous of. Really disappointed I didn't get to do the recording while Joel was in there, but a little bit premature with the uh, with the recording of his podcast. However, big thanks to Joel for giving up his time. Also, huge thanks to Hawking Dynamics, I Measure You, Athlete Monitoring, Omega Wave, and Output Sports for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run its run in its current form without these guys, so really appreciate their all their support. So thank you to you for tuning in, and I will chat to you next week.